Romans 8, verse 12. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the sense in accordance with God's will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. I suspect we can all look back to experiences of our school days uh, when we had to learn something we didn't particularly enjoy. So I'm thinking of times tables or the French irregular verbs or perhaps piano scales. Probably for each of us there examples and it was pretty hard graft but of course the payoff came later when you were able to do these things without having to think about them. And we have, of course, this phrase in English of uh, 
no gain without pain. Uh, it's something which is particularly true, I think, is used particularly of, of sports people. Uh, you may know Laura Kite, who is a, a mission partner of St. Andrew's, and she's engaged in sports ministry in Argentina. What you may not know is she's actually a very talented middle-distance runner. And two or three years ago, she had recurring injuries from her running and came to realize that the problem was that her natural running style was causing injuries. So what has she had to do? Well, she's had two painful years to train her body to run differently. But I think no gain without pain applies not just to sport, but it applies to life in general. And I want to suggest this morning that it applies particularly to our progress in the Christian life. It's no exception. So our passage is in, in Romans 8, but let me just remind you, in July, we looked at verses 1 to 11 of Romans 8, and we tackled an issue of the weakness of the will. That is, we know what is good, we know what the right thing to do, but so often the fallen human nature intervenes, and we end up behaving in ways which we know to be wrong. But St. Paul argues that this is not inevitable for Christians because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, verse 3, the Spirit gives us freedom from our sinful human nature. Verses 5 to 7, the Spirit changes our mindset and we become oriented towards the love of God rather than love of neighbor. And verses 8 to 9, the Spirit dwells in us, prompting us to seek the good and to shun evil. Now, having identified all these uh, advantages that the Spirit gives us, uh, St. Paul begins the next paragraph, and this is where our passage starts this morning, verse 12, with, therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers. Now, when in the Pauline epistles a section starts with, therefore, uh, that's usually signaling a transition from thinking about what Christ has done for us for the way in which we need to respond. So, therefore, is this point of transition. So, let me remind you of verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So Paul says, as Christians, we have an obligation. We're no longer in thrall to our sinful nature. Remember that the default position for human beings is to obey the promptings of our basic biological and psychological makeup. And we identified that in the previous sermon as materialism and greed associated with securing resources for ourselves. 
with the exercise of power to advance our interests, the antithesis of love for neighbour, and sexual promiscuity to pass on our genes. No, says St. Paul, those who have the Spirit have the capacity by the Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We have the option to behave differently. Put to death. In the older versions, they use the word mortify. And the word has a distinctly old-fashioned ring, maybe even slightly sinister. When we realize that the word for body is soma in Greek, that is the actual body. So what Paul is talking about here is the misdeeds of our actions, the use of our eyes, our mouths, our arms, our legs, our bodies, actions driven by our fallen nature. So mortification is not just a clear recognition of evil actions as evil, it's also a repudiation of those actions. In other words, schooling ourselves to stop doing those activities. Now, if you think that uh, St. Paul is over the top here, he's exaggerating somewhat, let me remind you what Jesus said about lust in the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm looking at Matthew 5 and verses 29 to 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. St. Paul didn't invent mortification. Jesus did. So what do we need to do about the misdeeds of the body? First, we must allow the Spirit to identify these to us. Probably will not include, for most of us, the grosser sexual sins, or overindulgence in food or alcohol, or violent behavior. It's more likely to be the use of our tongues to satisfy our desire for power over others by demeaning them in some way. Or perhaps the use of our time to satisfy ourselves rather than serve others. But secondly, having recognized the misdeeds of our body, we have to program ourselves to change. So we need to practice using our tongues to build others up, not to put them down. We need to examine how we use our time and ensure that time given to others, a visit, an invitation to your home, a phone call, an email, that that time is scheduled into our diaries. And we have to actively avoid situations in which you know you behave badly. 
I won't play croquet or golf because it makes me bad-tempered. Don't watch television programs that waste your time and feed you with non-Christian values. Third, find a Christian to accompany you in this program of mortification, helping each other to set targets, reporting regularly to assess progress, and praying for each other. And finally, don't fool yourself that the process of mortification is complete. It's a whole life program and is all too easy for the sinful nature to reassert itself. Well, if that's the pain, what's the gain? Let's read on. Verses 14, 15, and 16. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. If we allow the Spirit to lead us in this way, we are true to our status as sons of God. We're not slaves anymore. We're God's children. Now, I believe that the background here is the practice of adoption in the Greco-Roman world. It was not uncommon for a wealthy man to adopt a boy to be his heir. Very often that boy would come from a slave background. The boy would be given an honored position in the household. And all the attendant privileges. And he would have tutors to be educated and trained in the social skills appropriate to his future standing in society. I think that gives the context for the previous discussion of putting to death our evil deeds. As Christians, we are already adopted as God's children and heirs. That is our status. We have the privilege of relationship with God the Father as Abba Father. But like the adopted son in the Greek household, we need to be educated and socialized. And our tutor is the Holy Spirit. And if we are to progress, to become more worthy of our calling as God's children, we need to pay attention and to participate fully in the learning training progress program that we need to undergo with the Holy Spirit as our tutor. And the gain is spelled out in the first part of verse 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But before we get 
carried away with that thought, St. Paul reminds us that there is a price. There is a pain to be endured. See how he ends that verse? If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. At this point in this passage, St. Paul gets carried away, as he often does in his epistles. And he's completely overwhelmed by the idea that we are intended to be God's heirs to share his glory. And so he devotes the next several verses, up to verse 25, dwelling on that theme. Great verses, but no time this morning. Let's go back in verses 26 and 27 to his main theme of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Look again at verses 26 and 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Very briefly, if a boy is adopted as an heir, then the relationship with his adoptive family, father, is key to his flourishing and future. He needs to understand his father's expectations of him and what to ask of his father so that those expectations can be fulfilled. Now, you can imagine that that relationship was not always easy. The father could have unreasonable expectations, the adopted son, or the son could resent the pressures to conform. And in that situation, you can imagine that the son's tutor would have a key role in smoothing this relationship. So Paul's image here is of the Holy Spirit as the go-between. With a total understanding of what God wants of us, his children, and a total understanding of where we stand, where we have got to in our transformation from being slaves to our sinful nature to being adopted children of God. The point is this, we're not on our own in the process of putting to death the misdeeds of the body. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf for the Father to give us the resources we need to progress. Now, does this all seem unduly negative? Uh, mortification is not exactly popular in our culture. Now, there are exceptions, uh, training for sport, and, of course, slimming or exercise to achieve a body shape that is more to our liking. But not much else. But we also know instinctively that there is no gain without pain. You can't create a beautiful garden without clearing the undergrowth and the weeds. You can't speak French properly until you have learned and mastered the irregular verbs. 
You can't be a doctor without long hours of study and clinical experience. We can't grow as the children of God without being tutored by the Holy Spirit to put to death the misdeeds of the body. But that's not the end of the story. Positively, the Holy Spirit enables us to grow in Christian character. Come back for the sermon at the beginning of October when we'll deal with that. But until then, perhaps we should begin to make more progress in the process of mortification and take it seriously. I know we're not in the middle of Lent, but actually the collect for the second Sunday in Lent expresses this extremely well, so let's pray it now. Almighty God, whose Son Jesus Christ fasted 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted as we are, yet without sin, give us grace to discipline ourselves in obedience to your Holy Spirit. And as we know our weaknesses, so may we know your power to save. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.